that, that'll be fine. Let me uh, ask you to join with me in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Please be praying for Matthew and Brittany. They'll follow the Lord in baptism. They made decisions Sunday for Christ. And uh, we'll be coming. We're praying for Angelo as well, uh, who we'll be talking with about following the Lord. And then uh, about two dozen others that indicated they received Christ Sunday, uh, but did not make a public profession of faith. Please be lifting them up and asking God to move upon their uh, hearts. Uh, let's ask, uh, in fact, God to do something like um, we saw uh, when I was uh, pastoring uh, Ladonia uh, near Phoenix City, Alabama. Uh, we had Ronnie come in two or three times and had 70 and 40 professions of faith. We didn't baptize all of those. A number of them were teenagers that did not have transportation to church, but as they got wheels and got older, they trickled back into Ladonia, and they were able to baptize a good number of them. I don't know the number, but a good number of them that made professions of faith in the crusade when they uh, got um, to where they determined their own lives and schedules and things like that. God did a neat work through that. I do believe in the gift of the evangelist, and I'm in good company. The Apostle Paul did too in Ephesians chapter 4. So um, I I don't uh, mean to uh, make uh, any kind of sour or uh, insulting implications about modern-day Protestants and Catholics in this particular area. But 500 years ago, Anabaptists had some very serious complaints, not only theological but practical, and that is the Anabaptists were very upset with Catholics and Protestants 500 years ago, mostly Lutherans, because they didn't keep their houses clean. They were a mess and very bothered and upset with that because in that day it was typical to limit your religious life, and this was actually one of the intense complaints of the Anabaptists, to limit your religious life to what you did during worship on Sunday on the church property and act as wild as a buck the rest of the week and all the other hours. And the Anabaptists came along and said, no, Jesus Christ is to be Lord of all, so clean up your house is uh, what they said. Now, uh, there are some, I understand, that might want to, you know, especially moms with wild children, might want to duck under a chair or two. I, I sympathize. I understand that. And I don't mean to make any implications today. But the, uh, the, 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 the point and the challenge was is that the uh, Anabaptists believed godliness was to extend even to their home where they dwelt and the cleanliness of their homes. Now, as I mentioned, the descendants of the Anabaptist, uh, that's probably not going to surprise you. Okay? Uh, Baptists today are descendants of them, but two other groups are descendants of the uh, European Anabaptist, the Mennonites and the Amish today, and then the Baptist as well. Uh, the first two groups typically known more for their cleanliness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, uh, anyway, that's, um, uh, that, that's how the uh, Anabaptists thought in that day, in that if you were godly, you were disciplined enough to clean up your house. All right. Um, the point I want to make here is, is that there are many that might be willing to live in a dirty home, but God never will. At least in the Christian home of the heart, he'll never be comfortable in a place like that in the heart and soul of a life that is harboring unconfessed sin. And John addresses this in 1 John chapter uh, 1. Now as you're looking there, uh, let me remind you that lost people are not affected 
by unconfessed sin as Christians happen to be. A sow, a hog, never feels dirty in the pig pen, but at home. In fact, that's Peter's point in 2 Peter 2.22. A sow will always return to the slot, will always return to uh, the pen. And so that becomes a sign of lostness when there's constant returning to the pig pen. The difference between the lost and the saved is not that one sins and the other doesn't. the, The difference is found in two other places. Um, The difference is in the frequency of sinning and the feelings after sinning. The Christian, by the power of the Spirit, not because of self-righteousness or self-power, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit, will find that over the weeks and months and years after conversion, that uh, they'll grow in sanctification and purity and will sin less frequently. Never achieving perfection, of course, but will sin less frequently. And the feelings of it afterwards will be entirely different. Adrian Rogers put it this way. He said, the saint lapses into sin and loathes it. The sinner leaps into sin and loves it. And that's the difference. And that's very instructive as we look at this text in 1 John chapter 1. And the first thing I want you to consider in verses 3 and 4 are the consequences of a Christian's unconfessed sin. It says here, That which we've seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. The implication is, is that when we harbor unconfessed sin, we lose our joy of being saved. We lose our joy in Jesus Christ. We lose our joy in the things of, um, of God. Now to discern where we are standing with God in relationship to unconfessed sin, we can take the joy test. Do I regularly have joy unspeakable, full of glory, that Peter talked about in 1 Peter 1.8? If so, I'm probably walking in fellowship with him. If not... I may not, and I may be harboring unconfessed sin. The most miserable person on the earth is not necessarily the lost person. The most miserable person on the earth is the person who's got to point to their yesterdays as their best days with Jesus because they're harboring unconfessed sin. And that joy has been extinguished. Uh, unconfessed sin has stolen, stolen it. Now, uh, I do want to ask you to differentiate between happiness and joy, happenstance and joy. Uh, happiness depends on circumstances, depends on conditions. Joy depends on the presence of God and unbroken fellowship with Him. Happiness is like a thermometer. It registers conditions around us. It tells us what's going on around us. Joy is not a thermometer. Joy is a thermostat. It doesn't register condition. It it, uh, it regulates conditions around us and how we see them. Happiness can flee with trouble. Joy persists in it. Second Corinthians 7, 4, Paul said, I, and watch this, he's not exaggerating, I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Now, which letter in the New Testament is the joy letter, by the way? What do we refer to often as the joy letter? You've heard this. Philippians. Philippians is. And where, from where did Paul write it? Jail. He was in jail, unjustly so, and still wrote of great, outrageous joy. There's only one thing that can steal joy. Not circumstances, but unconfessed sin. 
So that's the consequence of a Christian's unconfessed sin. But then there's the concealing of the unconfessed sin. Verses 6 through 10 indicate this. And before we read this, uh, let me remind you, the tendency that we often have is to conceal instead of uncover. We conceal unconfessed sin rather than confess it. And when we conceal it, we run some terrible risk. One, we may be lying to others. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 6, he said, If we say... And we wouldn't merely say to ourselves, we'd say to others. If we say we have fellowship with him, if we claim some spirituality, if we communicate somehow, some way that we're spiritual and in fellowship with God, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So when we walk in unconfessed sin, our zeal for Jesus cools, but it's still entirely possible to put up a very impressive and convincing front. And to attempt to convince others that we really are right with God just as much as we have always been. We can pretend to be in fellowship with God and sometimes we'll compensate and overcompensate with it with bigger Bibles, louder voices, and sometimes being censorious and critical of other people. I want to tell you, for almost 30 years, I've gotten real worried about Christians who slice and dice and criticize others harshly and not with regret. You know, sometimes we've got to deliver bad news about other people's behavior. We've got to make judgments and evaluations. Understand that. Jesus said in John 7, 24, judge with righteous judgment. Understand that. But, oh, I've got to tell you, when I hear others uh, condemn others and point out their bad behavior with intensity, I think, okay, goodness gracious, you may have identified a speck, but you're about to reveal a log. I just wait for something to drop. I remember in the late 80s, no, the mid-80s, Jim Baker was condemned by Jimmy Swaggart, two evangelists, for his immoral acts. And it wasn't but a couple of months later that everything blew apart for Jimmy Swaggart. I'll never forget. And since that time, I've always wanted, I've said to myself privately, that person is really slamming this other person. And something is about to come out. They're entirely sincere. They may be entirely correct about that other person's behavior, but the intensity of it worries me. In other words, they announce someone else's sin and failure with intensity, not sorrow, not regret, and in the wrong context. You don't do it before the national media, for crying out loud. You see, you don't do that. You you do it with regret. You do it in prayer. You do it in private. You do it according to biblical uh, procedures and all. I've always worried about that. So there can be um, a tendency to overcompensate and give the impression that we're really walking with God when we're not because our tendency is to conceal instead of uncover sin. A bigger Bible, louder voice, uh, more intense condemnation of evil behavior. We can lie to others. But then lying to self, verse 8 doesn't use the word lying, but it does um, imply it. If we say that we've no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We tend to euphemize sin and convince ourselves that sin really isn't as bad as we think it is. Now, do you know what it means to euphemize something? There was one report from a product company that called a toothpick an interdental stimulator. Yeah. One uh, airline company had uh, the crash of uh, one of its jets and called it the involuntary conversion of a 747. Hospital reporting on the death of a patient in surgery uh, where they were liable, they called it um, therapeutic misadventure. 
You know, they, they didn't use the clear terms for the, I mean, the jet crashed, you're dealing with the toothpick, you killed the patient on the table. I mean, it's just as clear as that. They euphemized it. They used words better than what uh, the case actually was. We can do that with our own sins. Oh, we can do it. And therefore end up deceiving ourselves when we're harboring unconfessed sin. Let me say, unconfessed sin will boil inside of you. Unconfessed sin will annoy you. It will aggravate and grieve you. And, and so you won't just live with it and go on through you know, your day without coping one way or another with it. You'll, you'll do something. And oftentimes what people do is that they rename it in order to soothe their conscience and to soothe their soul. Um, and John says we end up deceiving ourselves. Sometimes we'll call it a preference. Well, you know, that's your preference. That's popular in these days with the number of behaviors that we have frowned upon through the years. Well, it's just your preference or it's a mistake. It's an error in judgment. One fellow called it a glandular malfunction. Well, that's, that's beautiful, isn't it? And then uh, I'm a product of my environment. Uh, I'm not the accumulation of my choices. I'm the accumulation of someone else's choices. Now, there may be a little truth in that, but to exaggerate it is to deceive ourselves. So in this way, we end up missing the severity of sin and lie to ourselves. We deceive ourselves, is what verse 8 says. Then we, we may end up lying to God or lying about God. Verse 10, if we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and that's a lie. We claim God's a liar, then that's a lie as well, and his word is not in us. When we euphemize sin, we imply God is a liar and therefore lie to God because he's not a liar, but he is the truth. So we've got to uncover, unload, and confess sin to God early and quickly and thank God that we can. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Then there's the conviction of the Christian's unconfessed sin. Verse number 5 uh, implies as much. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. So it's emphatic. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Uh, have you ever stepped into the light from a dark room? What does it do to your eyes? It annoys them, doesn't it? And uh, the light is somewhat blinding. Conviction is, is uh, a similar experience. It, it can be somewhat annoying to the soul. It's when the Holy Spirit aggravates your soul to get your attention to do something about unconfessed sin. Now, what I want to ask you to do here as well is not only tell the difference between happiness and joy, but also I'd like for you to tell the difference between the Holy Spirit's conviction and the evil spirit's condemnation. And oh, this is so important. You will actually dread this subject and maybe dreading it now if you can't tell the difference between the two. Uh, the conviction of unconfessed sin is actually a remarkable, outrageous joy and grace of God because it's part of the process in bringing it back to Him where there is sweetness and there's abundance and there's grace. The condemnation of the enemy is what would bring you to the point of dread and make you feel low. All right, so let, let's tell the difference between the Spirit's conviction and the devil's condemnation. When the Holy Spirit convicts, He does so presently. What I mean by that is, is that when the Holy Spirit bothers us about our unconfessed sin, He is bothering us about sin of which we are now guilty and have not confessed, not sin we committed and confessed a long time ago. The Holy Spirit never dredges up past sins that have been confessed. He has eliminated those 
and God has volitionally forgotten those and promised in Jeremiah 31, 34, I will remember them no more. And so one of the ways to tell whether God is convicting you or not or it's satanic condemnation is ask yourself this question. Have I already confessed this? If it's coming back up again, I can tell you it's from the enemy in hell. If it's something you haven't confessed, it's probably the Holy Spirit dealing with you. And he may be working in cooperation with your conscience uh, and all. But the truth is, is that when the Holy Spirit convicts us, he convicts us of things we have not yet confessed, not things we already have. So he convicts us presently. But secondly, he convicts us specifically. What the, what the devil will do, or a demon, is that a, the devil or a demon will just give you a general sense of worthlessness and unworthiness, and you'll just feel yuck and awful, and you won't like spiritual things because you feel so bad uh, about them. You'll be intimidated to approach them because you have this general sense of yuck, and there's nothing specific over which you feel bad. You just feel worthless and unworthy to come before God. Okay? That's what the devil will do. Whenever the Holy Spirit convicts you, on the other hand, he will specify what it is. Not a general sense of guilt, but a specific identification of some kind of unconfessed sin. In other words, uh, he'll say, you lied to your wife. You were harsh to your son. You're filled with envy. You're filled with lust. In other words, he'll, he'll get on something specific and you'll be able to identify it. Look, if you've got a general sense of guilt and can't identify what it is, that may very well be from the enemy. And he's trying to trip you up and defeat you. But if God puts his finger on something specific you have not confessed of which you're presently holding on to and have not confessed, then it's probably from the Holy Spirit. But then third, the Holy Spirit convicts redemptively. Satan accuses you to get you to flee from God. In fact, whenever Satan accuses you and condemns you, you want to run from God. You want to run from the things of God. You want to avoid the Bible. You want to avoid prayer. You're demotivated to seek God. You have no motivation whatsoever to seek God. Uh, you, you, you grow cold and worrisome about attending church. In other words, the things of God are no longer a joy to you. You want to run from them. I can tell you every time that's from Satan, that's from hell. Because when the Holy Spirit convicts you, the Holy Spirit's conviction does not repel. The Holy Spirit's conviction draws. And what he's attempting to do is stir you and bring you closer so you can experience grace. And so whenever you haven't confessed something, and whenever you can specific, specifically identify what it is, and you sense the need to come before him, and you have trust in your heart he'll have grace and forgive you, that's from the Holy Spirit. Anything short of that is probably from the enemy. So thank God for conviction. But there's a third item here, and that's the confession. Chapter 1, verse 9, is a verse we teach new Christians. And it's a verse that is uh, uh, profoundly important in many scripture memory programs, and it should be. And it has received rightful attention. He says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, confess comes from the Greek word monologeo, Mono, same, legale, word, to say the same thing as or to agree with. And so whenever we confess sin, what we're doing is that we're saying the same thing about it that God does. We're agreeing with him and we're taking God's side and he lets us. 
We're taking God's side with our sin, and we are accusing it and condemning our own behavior or our own attitude or disposition or omission. So we take God's side uh, against our own sin. We also agree with God about the way of cleansing. If we admit and confess something specific, but believe that we have to merit God's forgiveness by our own performance or behavior, then we're not really confessing sin. We're not saying the same thing about it. Because what God says about our sin is that atonement is already provided for and the only hope for forgiveness and restoration is the death and resurrection of Christ and renewing our trust in that. And so um, John here is talking about the confession of sin, meaning saying the same thing about it that God says. Now there, there are three features to it here in the text. One, it's continual confession. If we confess, it's in the present tense, which means it's linear, it's repeated action. If we continue to confess sin, in other words, the confession of sin should be a lifestyle. It should probably be a part of just about every prayer uh, you say, uh, whether in the morning or in the evening. In other words, you come clean before God. There there may be times when you may not have something to confess. Thank God, that's wonderful. But uh, most of the time, uh, we'll find it necessary to do that. But it's got to be a lifestyle, not something that you schedule with someone who sits in a booth in terms of another human, but a God on the throne who bids you come to him. See? And we can do it quickly, we can do it immediately, we can do it frequently every time there's a need because we can storm the throne when there's a need to receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. So it's continual. Then it's complete, complete confession. It says, if we confess our sins, plural, not sinfulness, singular. Just that we don't merely confess, oh God, I know I'm a sinner. I've got a tendency to do this. It doesn't hurt to do that. But he's talking about something different here. Not merely the nature, the sin nature that we get honest about having that, which is a healthy thing. But that we actually come before God with the specific instances of failure in sin in our hearts and lives. So if we confess our sins, our individual instances of sinful behavior or sinful disposition, then he forgives us. So we confess our individual sins. Please do not pray when you ask God for forgiveness. Oh God, if I have sinned, please forgive me. Get, get, get a bit more specific and say, oh God, uh, please forgive me for this thing. In other words, confess sin the way you committed it. Sam Cathy used to say, confess sin the way you committed it, one at a time. For every, for every violation of God's law and ways, make sure there's a one-to-one ratio between violations and confessions. But then, confident confession. Do not doubt God when you come before Him. In fact, the posture of doubt before God is never reasonable or justified. Never is. You should come to God eagerly with great trust and great hope Not presumption, but great hope that because Jesus has purchased all the grace you'll need between now and perfection on the other side, there is enough grace to cleanse you from all sin. That's what he says here. Because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and all of our guilt before God, he can cleanse us from all of that unrighteousness. Christ has purchased it. So it says something here about God's character. He is faithful. I mean, if God would crucify his son for sinners, imagine what he'll do for children. If God would slaughter his son and spill his blood upon the earth for strangers, what does he do for those who are his own? See? 
And so God is indeed faithful. He can be counted upon to cleanse and forgive sin. So that says something about his nature. He is faithful and something about the legal procedure here. He is not only faithful, but he's also justified in forgiving sin. I remember when I was a boy hearing my parents and grandparents complain bitterly about liberal judges who let criminals get off with crimes and would not sentence them. And I mean some of the most heinous things in the world. Uh, all sorts of violent assaults and murder and uh, the different degrees. And um, there are actually still states in the United States that merely slap the hands of sexual predators. Oh, that's horrifying. In other words, the punishment doesn't fit the crime at all. And it's not that it's a cruel and unusual punishment. It's, it's that, you know, it's what you would get for, you know, stealing a candy bar from a store for crying out loud. It's awful in some places. And I think maybe it's improved. One particular presidential candidate, I think, lost the election in the 80s uh, because he was soft, or portrayed at least as being soft on crime. And I think probably since that time, there's been more intense attention to it. But um, uh, it's, it's, it's horrifying that sometimes the punishment doesn't fit the crime because it's too light. Um, and then we were horrified when the punishment didn't fit the crime because either a punishment was not leveled against serious crime or it was too light. Well, let me ask you, can we accuse God of this very thing? Is God light on crime? Is God a liberal judge? The text says God is legally justified in forgiving sin. Richard Dawkins complains bitterly about the Christian doctrine of the atonement. He said, why is it necessary for someone to die in someone else's place? How about you just forgive it? And what he does not understand is that God has created a moral universe. You don't just get away from sin. You don't just get away with it. What can happen, though, is that God can provide a substitute. And that's precisely what we have in verses 1 and 2 of chapter Two, the chapter division here is a little disruptive, but it goes on to say, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. In other words, there uh, is an attorney, an advocate, who steps into the court of heaven and pleads your case. And the good news is, his father is the judge. And he is the son of the judge. And it goes on to say, his qualifications are sterling and impeccable. He's not only the advocate, Jesus Christ, but he's the righteous. He's in good standing with the court. He's got the best credentials, the highest credentials, the loftiest credentials of anyone who could ever come before God. And so he's Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. We can't satisfy the demands of God's law when we're guilty, so Jesus steps in as a substitute, and he does that, and he satisfies the court sentence against us. Therefore, someone has paid for sin, and God is justified in forgiving us every time. So come boldly. In fact, Luther would exaggerate and he's been misunderstood at times, but Luther would exaggerate saying, sin boldly. They don't get the wrong idea, okay? Don't get the wrong idea. But whenever you come before God, you can boldly pursue Him with all of your heart and all faith and all confidence, pleading for grace and for mercy. God is faithful and God is just to forgive us of all of our sins. So hurry, run, fly, and flee to the throne and plead for God uh, to uh, cancel guilt against unconfessed sin.
What I'd like for us to do now then is uh, on this basis, look at Psalms uh, 32. And as you're turning there, uh, we're still talking about the presence of God. And renewing and strengthening the presence of God is really dependent upon regular confession. And so that's why we're looking at that. And I want us to look at Psalms 32, and I'd like for us to pray through it uh, this evening. I'm going to read a section, then I'm going to suggest some prayer topics. And if you'll join me, uh, we'd appreciate that. Uh, Oftentimes when you read a beatitude, you can paraphrase it and have, I think, maybe a little more clear understanding of what is implied in the text. Uh, And it's an intentional implication, but it's a Hebrew way of stating something that uh, can be lost upon 21st century readers. And that is when you read a beatitude, blessed is, what you can do is that you can read it uh, as God blesses. Okay, so let's, let's read verses 1 and 2 that way. God blesses the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. God blesses the one to whom he does not input iniquity. Your, your, anytime you run a charge on your credit card, your credit card company inputs a charge to your card. That's the notion behind this. It's a financial word. God blesses the one in whom he does not input or charge iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's take a moment now in prayer and thank God for the blessing of forgiveness. Then he goes on and talks about in verses, uh, beginning in verse 3 and 4, the sorrow that comes with unconfessed sin and the joy of confessing it in verse 5, or his resolve to confess it in verse 5. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Let's pray that we would not dry up and decline by unconfessed sin. That we would not withhold our confessions from God. Would you take a moment to pray about that? And now in verses 6 and 7, he gives us good reasons to hurry and confess sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly should pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place, and you shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Let's pray that we ourselves 
and our church family will hurry and confess sin. And then David finishes this in verses 8 through 11 with uh, some of the things that God restores when we confess sin. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye or from my very own perspective. Do not be like a horse or like a mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and brittle, bridle, else they would not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts the Lord, mercy, shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray that God would restore his guidance and joy in our lives as we confess. Lord, I do pray that because of the blood that Jesus has shed and the mercy and grace and hope, peace, and pardon He's purchased by it, I pray that You would grow us to where we are eager and hungry and thirsty to confess sin. Please build us into the kind of people who quickly run to You and relinquish it and forsake it. And we pray that you'd make us a holy people that are full of guidance and joy in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Tommy has got something he needs to share with you about uh, Sunday.